0: God, you're my deliverer. Okay. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. My name is uh, Bassingthwaite, and I know that sounds like a handful. It's, uh, it's 16 letters long. My wife went from this little short name, Weeb, and she took on this humongous handle, Bassingthwaite, and it barely fits on, you know, those government forms with all the little boxes. Yeah, You've got to be careful because some of those forms it doesn't quite fit on. I'm really glad to be here this morning. I've never been in this church. I've never been with you. And uh, I've grown up in the prairies, been a prairie boy most of my life. And so this moving to BC thing is kind of an interesting thing for us. But we're really enjoying it so far. We're not quite here yet. We're house-sitting in a place in Langley. We take possession of our own place in Aldergrove in a couple of weeks. And uh, hopefully that transition will all go really, really well. And I am excited to uh, start tomorrow officially, although tomorrow is a holiday, so I'm not quite sure how that works. But uh, start officially as the National Mission Director for the Evangelical Free Church of Canada. Uh, It's a job that I think I'm really going to love because it resonates with my heart. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning as we get into our message. Before we do that, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the talent that we have uh, been led by here on the stage in the last few minutes. As uh, we have seen a couple of incredible people with gifts from you lead us to the, the throne. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have been able to come and and pour out our hearts before you in in song and to give back to you in offerings and to think a little bit about what this church is going to be doing in the community over the next couple of weeks. And Father, as we now spend some time in your word, guide us. Help us to open our hearts and our lives to your Holy Spirit for something new. Something that, even though we're looking at a passage that uh, those of us who've been in church for a number of years, we know, we know it almost backwards and forwards. We could probably say it. And yet, strike us with something new, we pray. Amen. Amen. ever been here somewhere between lost and very lost that's a little how my wife's feeling right now she's trying to drive around the lower mainland Uh, I've been out here a number of times and I kind of know a little bit of the lay of the land Uh, this is all brand spanking new for her she grew up in southern Saskatchewan we lived most of our time in rural Alberta uh, you can imagine that the Lower Mainland is a bit of a change, right? And, and she's somewhere sometimes between lost and very lost. She's like, what do these numbers mean? It's simple. Uh, you know, everything counts down to the ocean on one side. Everything counts down to the border on the other side. Just follow the numbers, right? And it's pretty simple. But uh, sometimes you get lost, right? Sometimes, when we are lost, we need direction. And you know, when it comes to theological lostness, I'm a pretty good Calvinist, I think. I used to read Calvin all the time, every day. And I think Calvin's got some good things to say about being lost. Oh, you were waiting for a different Calvin? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the Calvin I would read every day. Yeah, Here he is walking with this uh, person who looks like his mother. Hey, those kids are feeding the animals. Mom, can I get some peanuts to feed the animals? I'm not your mom. Whoop. Are you lost? What does your mom look like? Well, from the knees down, she looks just like you. Uh-huh. Ever been there? yeah yeah i think we all have and then when we actually ask for directions sometimes we get well they're not so helpful take your first laugh then your next laugh then another laugh then one more laugh this is why you don't get directions from nascar fans you go in circles yeah i'm usually pretty good when it comes to with sense of direction i i I don't know. i just kind of always been that way. I remember as a, a young kid, uh, my parents and I, we walked into this mall the one time and we did all our shopping. And, and uh, then we went to leave. And my parents insisted that we were supposed to go out that door. And I was pretty convinced that we needed to go out that door over there. And they're like, no, 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 no. And finally, my mother She said, Roy, that's my dad's name, you know, Neil's usually pretty good with this stuff. Why don't we, like, see if, so we went out the door I suggested, and that was where the vehicle was, and I've always kind of been that way, but even I get lost once in a while. A number of years ago, I was taking a youth mission trip to Mexico from our evangelical free church in saskatoon where i was a youth pastor at the time and so we're in a foreign country we, we only have survival spanish you know those basic phrases like don de este el baño por favor you know where's the bathroom you know those kind of phrases and We're driving along and my directions, we're going to hospital where we're gonna stay and we're gonna work. And my directions were to leave Ensenada and travel for about two hours to the first traffic light. And turn left. No kidding. First traffic light, two hours. It's pretty rural. And so we're out there, we're driving, we get approximately, it's not maybe quite two hours, but approximately where we thought we should be. Sure enough, there's a traffic light. Okay, we turn left and we're driving down. And now the directions for getting into the hospital, which is supposed to be off this road, aren't really making any sense anymore. And I'm like, eh, something's not right. And so I pull up at this building, this complex that looks like it could be a hospital, but it doesn't quite feel right. And so I'm rehearsing my Spanish phrases in my head because I've never used them in actual conversation before. And I walk up to the door, I I swallow my man pride, and I'm going to ask for directions, right? And this Mexican man opens the door and goes, Hola! And all that Spanish just flew right out of my head. <laughs> the only word that came to my mind at that moment in time was English? <laughs> And he laughed. He said, yeah, I speak English. And I said, okay, uh, we got a problem here. I'm I'm lost. Uh, and he said, you turned at the first traffic light, didn't you? So you know about this? said, so yeah, these people that send people to the hospital, they always forget about the first traffic light is for us. The second traffic light is where you turn to get to the hospital. Oh, okay, so we got back out on the road, went down, found the second traffic light, turned, got to this hospital where there was this welcome mat in in English and in Spanish. I'm not sure if this is quite right, but we got there and we got this incredible welcome and it was great to feel like you were home, like you'd made it where you were supposed to be after being lost. That's a little what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to do it from a parable. Parables are those stories that Jesus told. Stories that have a deeper underlying meaning, but come with some just really basic down-to-earth kind of stuff. But they're not just simple stories. Parables often help us think about the kingdom of God. See, we're all part of this kingdom of God. King Jesus is our king. And Jesus tells these stories to help shape us to live out the values that our king values. And so as Jesus tells a series of stories in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to watch for those values that Jesus values and see if we live those same values out as subjects of King Jesus. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to put a lot of the text up on the screen this morning, so if you do want to see that text, feel free to follow in your Bibles. Luke chapter 15 actually is a series of stories, like I said, three stories that Jesus tells. We're going to really concentrate on the last one, but to kind of get a sense of what that last one's all about, I think we need to at least see what the other two are and see why Jesus told these stories in the first place. And we get that right at the very front end of Luke chapter 15. It says that my particular translation, at least, if you have a different one, feel free to follow along in yours, says tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Yeah, I love the way my translation puts that tax collectors and other notorious. And it was almost a given that if you said the word tax collectors in Jesus' day, that was a notorious sinner. So tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. That's pretty interesting. But it kind of unsettled some other people, didn't it? It says, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. In a Middle Eastern culture, sharing hospitality raised the level of connection incredibly. It does even here in North America but maybe not to the same extent that would have in a Middle Eastern culture. And so when Jesus sits down and has a meal with these people, he gets some looks. He gets some fingers pointed at him. He gets some comments by the religious leaders of his day that say, what are you doing, Jesus? Don't you know who these people are? Why are you hanging out with these people? So Jesus, he's kind of a wanted man, isn't he? Wanted for befriending sinners. And that's the point. That's why Jesus tells these stories. says, so Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? And Jesus launches into this short but rich story about a shepherd who is so concerned with that one lost sheep that he leaves the 99 sheep that he already has in the pen He braves the weather. He braves whatever is out there in terms of terrain. He braves whatever is out there in terms of wild animals. And he goes and searches till he finds that lost sheep. And he brings it back. And verse 7 says this. In the same way, There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over ninety-nine others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, is there joy in heaven over ninety-nine who stay? Absolutely. But there is more joy, it says, when you find lost sheep and bring them back. I think we're starting to catch a sense of the value that Jesus has here. But he goes on, and he tells another story. Verse 8, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Oh, well, what's the big deal, right? It's just a silver coin. She's, She's still got a whole bunch of them, right? Well, it's quite likely that these silver coins... We're part of a dowry. Ladies, if you were to happen to look down at your engagement ring and you would happen to notice that, you know, say, you had a diamond cluster there and one of your diamonds was missing from your diamond ring, you go, oh, well, there's lots of other diamonds in there. That's okay. I don't think that's probably how you would react. You'd go, I lost a diamond. I'm going to find this now. And you start searching. And that's exactly what this woman does. It says that she takes a light, a lamp, and sweeps out her entire house. And she searches carefully until she finds that lost coin. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And it becomes a whole community celebration. Verse 10 says, In the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels, when even one sinner repents. I love this phrase. This is in my translation. It's not in every translation. But in verse 11, it says this, to illustrate the point further. Now, Jesus often told stories in triplicate. I I don't know if it was Jesus kind of saying, you know, three strikes and you're out, or third time's the charm, or what exactly it was, but but Jesus often told triplicate stories. And this is one case where he dies. And we get to the the third story, and it's kind of the quintessential story of the whole bunch. And it starts with a young man and a father. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Even today, if we were to go to our fathers and say, hey, I I know you've got some inheritance for me, and before you die, I'd just kind of like to cash in on that. (laughs) How do you think that would go over? I don't think it would go over very well, would it? In Jesus' day, when family was everything, when the patriarch ran the family, what this son inherently is doing is wishing his father dead. Can you imagine? I'd rather you were dead, Dad, because then I'd get my stuff. In Jesus' day, it was probably... Possible for a father with this kind of scenario to say, you're out of here. I disown you. And he would have probably been well within his rights to do that. But that's not what this father does. It says there that his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. This young man is now in dire circumstances. Now... Interestingly, and this one's just kind of for free, interestingly, North Americans and people in other parts of the world read this part of the story very differently. Us here in North America, if you ask how this guy that we typically call the prodigal son got himself in such a terrible situation, we almost always go, he wasted his money in wild living. End of story. For people in some other parts of the world, they hardly even notice that fact. They notice that a great famine swept across the land. Why? Because they have great famine almost all the time. That's a circumstance that they are intimately familiar with. I think as we grapple with god's word we've got to be careful and we can learn from some of these other people in some other places of the world to understand the scripture better and that's one of the places that we can do it we can take and put those two ideas together because they're both there in our text and say ah this young man found himself in a very dire situation both because he wasted his money and because a great famine swept across the land and now he's starving and he persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs Jewish boy that doesn't quite work does it pigs aren't kosher this is pretty distasteful The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And finally he came to his senses. The original language there kind of talks when his eyes were opened, when he woke up. It's as if he was kind of wandering around, you know, kind of like some of these... Pokemon and Go players that I've been hearing about. Just kind of wandering around in their own little world, not paying much attention to anything. And all of a sudden, poof. Ah, oh, there's a whole reality out here that I never knew about. And it's, that's kind of what happened with him here. He, he kind of woke up, came to his senses, and said to himself at home, Even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, His father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him, he kissed him. His son said to him, he launches into the the pre-planned speech here. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And then he gets cut off. He doesn't get to finish, because we we know what the pre-planned speech was, right? There was more to it than that. He doesn't get to finish. His father cuts him off. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. These are signs of sonship. The father says, I don't want any talk of this hired servant stuff. You're coming home as a son. We're going to make sure you're a son. So get... Get the family ring, get the sandals, get the robe. Let's make sure you understand you're a son. And kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. so the party began. Celebration. And if we were doing a Hollywood script, this is where we end the story, right? Lost son comes home. Family's together again. Everything's good. It's all happy at the end. Close it off. But that's not where our story ends. And I'm convinced that it's because that's not really what the story is about. Although, as great as this is to hear about prodigals and know that we're kind of prodigals and we're home, that's not really what the story is about. And so, Jesus keeps on telling more of this story. Meanwhile, the older son. Now, I use this graphic in no way, shape, or form to endorse the TV show, Big Brother, okay? I think that's a trashy show, and we probably don't ever need to watch it, but this particular graphic does kind of illustrate what goes on in the next few verses here, as Big Brother kind of eyeballs the house to see what's going on says here, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Paul was kind of curious. You ever ask yourself questions about the text that you just kind of jump out and go like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why doesn't he just go in the house and find out? Ever think about that? Why doesn't he just walk in the door? Go, oh, party. Okay, cool. Uh, No, he doesn't even bother. He asks his servant. I don't know if it's because he has an inkling of what already is going on or what. I'm not quite sure. But it's one of those questions that's kind of always stuck with me when I read through this story. Why doesn't he just go and find out? Maybe he kind of knows. He asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother's back, he was told, and your father's killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was overjoyed. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, not overjoyed at all. He was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. And he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours... Can't even call him his brother, can he? When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Notice the emphasis all through that passage. Brother is not even so much upset at little brother as he is at dad. You, your money, You welcome him back. You never did this for me. And his father said to him Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. Absolutely 100% true, because the inheritance has been split. Little brother got his share. Everything this father now has is completely and utterly big brothers. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And that's where the story ends. With big brother still standing outside the house. With dad trying to convince big brother to come in and be a part of the family. And we're left kind of with these loose ends. And I think there's a reason for that. Because I think Jesus wants us to find ourselves in this story. He did when he first told it. Remember why he told it? He told it because Pharisees were complaining about his befriending and having food with notorious sinners. And he wants us to find ourselves in there too, just like he wanted the Pharisees to find themselves in the story. Now, most of us find ourselves right here, don't we? And we never should ever forget this. We're all prodigals. I love some of that music that we sang this morning about, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. I mean, man, we are prodigals. If it wasn't for God's grace, none of us have a hope. We have all, somewhere along the way, turned our backs on our Father and walked away. We've insulted him. We've sinned against him. And yet, because of grace... Because of his incredible love, his compassion, we are welcomed home with open arms. We should never, ever forget that we're prodigals. Maybe if we never forgot we were prodigals, it would help us not find ourselves in some of the rest of the story. Because sometimes, unfortunately, we're more like Big Brother, aren't we? Now, this is from 1984, where Big Brother's constantly watching, right? And in some ways, that's exactly what Big Brother in this story's done. He knows the details of what Little Brother's been up to. Do you notice how he throws some of those details out at Dad? He's been watching, and he doesn't like what's going on, and he's been kind of pointing fingers. And this is exactly why Jesus told this story, because the people that he wanted to make the point to are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they tend to get a bad rap, don't they? We tend to, you know, kind of dump on them in Christian circles. Oh, those Pharisees, those religious leaders, they were awful people. But really, they were pretty upstanding citizens. If you wanted a good neighbor, a Pharisee would have probably been what you wanted, actually. They kept their yards clean. They obeyed all the laws. I mean, you would absolutely love having a Pharisee as a neighbor. Their kids grew up respectful, right? But somewhere along the way, they began to think, hey, if we're supposed to obey all these rules, then everybody else is supposed to obey all these rules too. That's kind of the sign of holiness. Holiness. And so they began to look at other people and go, oh, they're not quite measuring up. And when they noticed that other people weren't quite measuring up, then they they began to try and enforce the rules and say, hey, Jesus, your disciples, they're not washing their hands before they eat. Now, that's not just about germs, okay? There was ceremonial washings and stuff, and you've got to understand that. But... That was exactly the point. The Pharisees thought you had to do that stuff to be holy. And they come to Jesus, and they say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Your disciples aren't matching up here. We got a little problem. Hey, Jesus, why are you sitting and having a meal with these people? You're not supposed to do that, Jesus. And I worry at times that in our churches, in our Christian lives, we actually have more in common with Pharisees than we care to admit. No one wakes up. Some morning looks in the mirror and goes, Oh, today I want to be a Pharisee. We back into that, don't we? Can happen pretty easy. We wind up going to a conference and we kind of get charged up and passionate about Jesus. We start to live out some new things, make some decisions. Ah, life is going great. Man, wouldn't it be cool if other people could feel this and sense this too? And it would be, right? And pretty soon we begin to look at other people and say, hey, they're not quite as passionate about Jesus as I am. And it's at that moment Right there that that can go either way. Can it? And we can very easily back into being a Pharisee and not even know it. Because when we make that slight shift and go, "They're not as passionate about Jesus as I am," I wonder if I could, I could help them be that. I'm going I'm to try and maneuver things in their life to, to, to do that. Maybe we'll set up a rule or a, a standard, and, and if they measured up to that, then, then they could be as passionate about Jesus as I am. And we've just crossed a very dangerous line, haven't we? And in doing so, we often forget the heart of Jesus in the story. And the heart of Jesus for lost people. Because he's not quite as concerned about maintaining all the standards as he is about having lost people come home. That, I think, is the contrast between big brother and the father. The father who stands with open arms, the father waiting for the son to come. The father who sees the son a long way off and runs out filled with love and compassion to greet him. Now, parents are supposed to, pass on some genetic material aren't they they do i one of the beauties of being a little bit older is that you know you get to see you, know, you get to know people uh, that you were contemporaries with the kids and you saw their parents and now you're older and you you see those kids that you knew the same age as the parents and it's amazing how much they look and act the same you ever notice that genetics is pretty powerful well, just like physical genetics make us look alike as our parents, I think, you know, we ought to live out some of the same values as our parents, don't you? Look the same, have the same heart. The father in this story depicts God, our heavenly father, in his heart. And he's calling on us to find ourselves in the story. Having the same heart as the Father. That's the kingdom value. We talked about kingdom values. And here's the kingdom value. Jesus' heart for the lost. To understand just how bold that is. I want us to think a little bit about honor and shame. Middle Eastern culture is about honor and shame. A lot of Eastern cultures have that whole honor-shame dynamic going on. Here in North America, we don't understand that quite as well because we come from more of a right-wrong culture, right? Things are right and wrong. There's legalities about things. Not so much in Eastern cultures. It's about, oh, if you do the wrong thing, you bring shame on your family. And shame is what you want to avoid. Honor is what you want to bring. As the story opens, we saw a son who brought shame on a family. He brought shame by telling his dad he basically wanted him dead. He brought shame by going and wasting his money in ways that weren't appropriate. He even brings shame in some ways as he re-enters the scene as he comes home again. In fact, I kind of think this is how it plays out. And you don't find this in the text. This is kind of in my imagination. Growing up in a rural setting, I kind of, get this. There's farm animals around, but it seems like there might be neighbors here too. So I think it's one of those little small communities where the kind of the farming and the, the community is all kind of intermingled. You see the son begin that journey and he starts to get close to home and the neighbors are kind of going, hey, look who's coming. Because they all know, right? I mean, it's a small community. One of the small communities we moved into It was the second day we were there. We went to the bank to open a bank account. They knew my last name. They could spell it. I was like, how do you know that stuff? Everybody knows. It's a small community. That's the kind of community that this kid's from. And he's walking down the road, and all the neighbors are throwing out their little insults. And his head's getting lower. And his step is getting slower. And there is a moment. And the father who's watching sees it. There is a moment, a split-second decision where that boy is about ready to turn around and leave. Because the shame is starting to pour down on his head. And I think it's at that precise moment that out of the gate comes the Father. Doing something that a Middle Eastern man does not do. I heard a message on Zacchaeus a couple of years ago by an Iranian pastor. He's Iranian, so he's got insights into Middle Eastern culture that I just don't have. He talked about Zacchaeus and how Zacchaeus did a couple of things that that were completely and utterly inappropriate for Middle Eastern men. One, he climbed. Middle Eastern men don't climb. That's that's a shameful act. It's inappropriate. We've got robes. They also don't run. That's a shameful act. It's inappropriate. But this father does. And I think it's a, that precise moment when he knows, if I don't do something, something drastic, whatever it takes, that son of mine is going to turn around and he's going to leave and he's going to be gone And the lost is not going to come home. And so I have to take his shame on me. So I become the object of shame. So I am going to do something so radical that suddenly all the neighbors aren't going to be looking at my son anymore. They're going to be looking at me and going, Oh, what is dad doing? That's not right. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? He took our shame. He took it on himself. He went to a cross. He died for us. That's why we as prodigals get to come home. And that's why the Father, in the Father's heart, if we were to live it out, We would act in ways just like this father. Saying, what can we do? Even sometimes if it means risk. That's the logo from the conference coming up this week, by the way. Risk in the right direction. And that's precisely what this dad did, didn't he? He risked. He risked his reputation. He risked having his neighbors think less of him. He risked a lot of stuff to make sure his son comes home again. He even risked having some people in his own family angry. His own son. Angry to make sure that the other son gets home. That's our call, isn't it? We're to be those welcoming agents. We're to be those people that go out and live out the Father's heart. We're supposed to be the ones that say, hey, I need to do whatever I need to do to make sure lost people find their way home. My new job is National Mission Director for the Evangelical Free Church of Canada. Here in Canada, I'm not sure we consider ourselves a mission field. We send missionaries to other parts of the world. You know, they come back. They tell these incredible stories of what God's up to. Do we have those same kind of stories in Canada? Sometimes we do. I would love for us to be able to tell those kinds of stories all the time guess what God is doing? You know, some of them are there. I was just, this past week, Monday night, I was just off to our Johnston Heights church, where one of their staff pastors, Phil Harris, has a very intentional group of people going out and sharing their faith. They're passionate about it. They want to see lost people come home. Just Monday night, I had the incredible privilege of being with Phil Harris, their staff pastor, praying with a woman to receive Christ. A lost person came home and there was great rejoicing in heaven. Amen. Who said that? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is the heart of the Father. I love that you guys are, Working on that VBS. I love some of the things that I heard already this morning. I want to encourage you in that. Keep growing that heart of the Father. It's risky. It's risky. If we really care about seeing lost people come home. We might be accused of some things by some fellow brothers and sisters at times. Why? We probably all heard some of those things. Oh, you put ashtrays out for those people you had over at your house last night. Why did you do that? Why? Because I care about lost people. I saw you in a bar. Why were you there? Because I care about lost people. And the list could go on and on, couldn't it? And we're going to get accused of some things, maybe even have some shame pour down on our heads if we really want to connect with the people that God wants us to connect with and see great stories of people, lost people, coming home. But is it worth it? You had better believe it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story that, if we, like I said, if we've been in church any length of time, we've probably heard many, many times already. But Father, I hope that as we've walked through it today, that you would have used it to encourage our hearts, to grow us, to strengthen us in our courage, to take risk, to maybe act in ways that some people might think are shameful, but ways that really, truly live out your heart for lost people. As we leave today, help us not to just walk away and go, oh, wow, that was kind of cool. Help us to walk away and have some of the stuff that we've been thinking resonate with us through the week and find practical ways to actually live that out. Maybe have some people in our home. Lost people. Maybe go somewhere where we know some of those lost friends of ours are going to be. Hang out with them. Help us to be very practical about some of this thing. And now I'm like a child and I, who never asked to think of why. We're free to love and live and die, and there's no need to justify.